that song, I want to ask you the chorus of that song. I'm going to put it in question form. Is this your story? Is this your story? There are people who might claim to be um, believers or have faith, if you will. Uh, but this is not their story. They might have some religious background. They might have some religious knowledge. They might have some, call it piety in them, if you will. Um, but this is not their story. So I want to I encourage us to open Scripture uh, and see and look at an account of, of 12 men of whom this was not their story until Paul met them. I want to encourage you to open the book of Acts, chapter 19. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 10. If, um, if you did not bring your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to find a Bible provided in a chair in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 928. I encourage you to open Scripture and follow along as we read God's Word to us this morning. Here's the word of the Lord for us. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Amen. Now, this is the word of God for us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to give us the Holy Spirit once again in fresh ways, so that we may understand and apply this truth to our hearts. Oh, Father, we recognize that apart from your Spirit, our minds are dull to understand and to apply well what we have heard. Father, we pray that you would give us your Spirit again in fresh ways and apply your truth to our hearts so that your people, those who hear your word here this morning, we respond appropriately in praise and submission to your work. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, this passage, friends, introduces us to Paul's ministry, a longer ministry that he had in, in Ephesus. If you remember, last time we looked at uh, the book of Acts, we looked at chapter 18, and, and we saw how Paul uh, briefly arrived in Ephesus, stayed very, very briefly, and, and the, if the Jews in Ephesus said, hey, would you stay longer? And he said, I can't, but if the Lord wills, I'll come back. And so here in chapter 19, we see Paul coming back. In verses 8 through, uh, through 10, gives us a picture of, of how Paul ended up staying in Ephesus for, for almost or even more than two years. But the way Paul's ministry in Ephesus started was by Paul encountering some, some believers, some disciples. And uh, the encounter with these disciples seems to be getting Paul or Luke's emphasis. And we get quite a bit of detail of what happened as Paul engaged these disciples. Before we look at this passage and this engagement, that this dialogue between Paul and, and the, uh, these disciples, I want to let you know that this passage is very often used by Pentecostal churches to claim that the receiving of the Holy Spirit is a second step in our experience of the Christian life. Um, they often connect this passage with uh, three other texts in the book of Acts, namely Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, and Acts chapter 10, and claim that the receiving of the Holy Spirit is a separate experience than the experience of becoming a Christian. That is a second stage, and uh, that's why in, in Pentecostal circles, you hear the phrase baptism with the Holy Spirit as being different than baptism with water. But when looking at this passage, they would say that these disciples were already Christians, but they simply have not experienced the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So, Pentecostal interpretations claim that our Christian experience is a two-stage journey. First, we come to repent and believe in Jesus, and then, as a second experience, we come to receive the Holy Spirit. But as we will see, this passage does not support this interpretation. This passage does not support this interpretation. Um, especially when we think about the way Paul assumes what should have happened when these disciples became Christian. When Paul arrived at Ephesus, he encountered this group of disciples. They may have... Uh, claimed to belong to the community of Christians. After all, they did say that they have believed. This, this is how they present themselves to Paul in verse 2. And Paul asks them about their experience when they have believed, which tells us they, this is how they presented themselves, as, as those who have believed. But something was off. Something was off, and we don't know what. We don't know if, if, if something in their response was off or something about the way they lived life was off. For some reason, which is unknown to us, Paul feels impelled to ask him some more diagnosis questions. Something was off about them that leads Paul to ask two questions about whether or not they received the Spirit when they believed. 
And friends, the fact that Paul even asked these questions leads us to reconsider what is supposed to happen to us when we become Christians, when we believe. Sometimes you hear people say this phrase. I don't know if you have or not, but I have, certainly. Um, having faith is all that matters. Have you heard that phrase? And I want to say, is it? Faith in what? This passage shows us that having faith is not enough. Or let me clarify that, just so you, you don't think that I am anti-Reformation, I, I believe in, in faith alone. We're saved by faith alone. But, but still, I want to say this passage shows us that claiming to have faith may not be enough. Uh, having faith is not the only experience that matters for a true Christian conversion. Having faith is not, um, is not the only thing that matters for a true Christian conversion. So let's look at four things that happen in a true Christian conversion. That's why I entitled my, my message this morning, True Christian Conversion. I'd like to look at four things that come out of this passage that show us about what true Christian conversion is about. First of all, let me say what it's not. Christian conversion, here's the first point, is not a one-way street. Christian conversion is not a one-way street. There's more to Christian conversion than simply our decision to believe. When I say it's a one-way street, I'm, I'm talking to those who have the impression that Christian conversion is primarily about my decision to believe in something. And I want to say Christian conversion is not just that. It's not a one-way street. Put negatively, Christian conversion does not involve only our decision to believe. Christian conversion also involves the reception of the Spirit who changes our hearts. The Spirit who gives us a new birth. In other words, the essence of Christianity and the essence of Christian conversion is not merely human decision or faith. Now, it certainly involves human decision and, and faith, but it involves more than that. It also involves the receiving of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul dares to ask this, this basic diagnosis question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Hey, friends, if any of you or, or anyone else, uh, if any person wants to, to convert to any other religion than Christianity, what, what would be involved in that conversion to that other religion? And I'm not talking denominations within Christianity. I am talking other religions other than Christianity. If you were to, to convert to another religion, um, what you would have to do is um, to decide to become a practitioner of that religion and uh, to start believing what it claims about the gods, about the world, about us as human beings, you have to start believing that which it claims and start practicing what it says. In such conversions, all that is involved is your decision 
you wake up one morning and decide, you know what, I am going to be a Buddhist starting today. And you start getting to know what it is about and what you should do as a Buddhist and, and the, the kind of things you should live and life and lifestyle and things of that nature and what you should believe. And it's all up to, to you. Your decision. But Christian conversion is different. Very different. It does not involve only a human decision in order to be Christian conversion. Christian conversion also involves the receiving of the Spirit of God inside of us. Without this receiving of the Spirit of God inside of us, we're not true Christians, no matter what we claim about ourselves. Do you get that? Now you say, where do I get that from the Bible? Where, where is this coming from in the Bible? Well, let me point to you just a few references. There's many others. I'll just point out a few. If you like taking notes, write down these references so you can look them up on your own as well. But in the letter, Paul eventually will write to the church in Ephesus. Remember, he's now in Ephesus. But to the letter, he will write to the Ephesians a few, sometime later. He will say, this is how he starts off, Ephesians 1.13. In him, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. Do you hear? When, when does this happen? When does a sealing with the Spirit happen? It happens when we hear the word of truth and when we believe in him, in Christ. Uh, here's another reference in Titus 3, 5. Uh, the apostle Paul writes to Titus, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is how God saved us. This is what happened to us when God saved us. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what happens when God saves us. Galatians 3, 2, another passage. Paul asked the Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What is, what is Paul asking the Galatians as they were in the danger of, of going off to a different gospel? He's saying, guys, brothers, church, believers, how did you receive the Spirit of God? By works of the law or by hearing? With faith. That's how we receive the Spirit. In other words, when we hear with faith, we receive the Spirit. These verses are just a few that make it very clear that the experience of becoming a Christian involves not just our decision to believe, but also God's giving of the Holy Spirit to us at the time of faith in Christ. That's why Paul's first question of examination is so important. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Friends, Paul assumes this experience to be normative, to be required of essence for every Christian conversion. This receiving of the Spirit should happen when we believe in the Lord Jesus as the one and only who is able to take away the sin of us before God and wipe it away and cleanse us 
of our sin. Today, friends, uh, we may oversimplify this um, experience of Christian conversion to the point that we actually distort it. Sometimes we talk about Christian conversion as if it's only about our decision. And that's off. Because if the Apostle Paul were to come and ask us uh, this question, this question should not take us off by surprise. So when we speak about what happened to us when we believed, we should speak about Christian conversion as involving more than just our human decision. And yet, can I say it plainly to you, I almost hear exclusively, or I hear almost exclusively, just the human side of it. And we need to correct that. We need to correct even our language and even our understanding that conversion is not just a human decision. Yeah, we, we're so delighted to hear that people may, may make a profession of faith, that people make a decision to, to embrace Christ. Praise God for that. But, but we want to realize that Christian conversion is not just the human decision. Just be aware of that and, 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 and allow for room for that. Sometimes we oversimplify it to the point of actually distorting it. Um, we, we make it very man-centered. We have a very man-centered view of conversion. We focus only on what we do and forget what God is supposed to do in every Christian conversion. Um, one of the verses that is often used for this oversimplification and distortion of Christian conversion is, um, is a verse when Jesus speaks about the little children. And Jesus says in two verses, um, Luke 18, 17, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child or like a child shall not enter it. Matthew 18, 3 says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And people assume by these verses that all you must do to become a Christian is to believe like a child. And the answer is no, that is a wrong application of it. First of all, it doesn't say you just have to believe like a child. It says you must turn and believe like a child. Second, it actually speaks about receiving the kingdom of God like a child. It speaks about the receiving the reign of God into our, in our lives. That's what it means. But more than that, this, these verses would be in no contradiction with what Paul asked in Acts 19. Something else happens to us when we embrace the reign of God in our lives. Something else happens to us when we embrace Christ through repentance and faith. That is the work of the Spirit in our hearts. So that these verses are not contradictory. They simply point to that deeper reality that happens in Christian conversion. So that our faith is not just a superficial acknowledgement of faith in God. Such verses remind us that the Spirit of God is indeed crucial to our Christian conversion. Paul says in Romans 8, 9, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Friends, can it be more clear than that? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. That's why I'm asking you, be weary 
of having an oversimplified and distorted view of what it means to become a Christian. Christian conversion is not a one-way street. It certainly involves our response of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, but it is not limited only to what we do. It is also accompanied by the receiving of the Spirit. And that's why Paul is able to ask very bluntly, very directly, very clearly and plainly, did you receive the Spirit when you were saved or when you heard? The second component of true conversion is a Christian conversion has a clear object of faith. Christian conversion has a clear object of faith. The answers these disciples give to Paul shows that the object of their faith was deficient for salvation. The object of their faith was sufficient, uh, deficient, deficient for salvation. Look at Paul, what they say in verse 2b. We did not even hear there's a Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness. I, I can just imagine Paul saying, oh my goodness. And th 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 what were you baptized into? And notice Paul's second question. He's assuming what he's assuming about Christian conversion and about baptism. So when, when, when we come to know the Lord Jesus and respond to him in repentance of faith, and, and we're, we're baptized in, into something like this. I mean, water doesn't have to be, it can be a river or anything else, but we're baptized in the name of, of Christ. Paul is assuming here, well, what were you baptized into? It assumes a baptism in the Holy Spirit. You see, Christian baptism is a symbolic act that displays the content of our faith. Now, in, in Baptist circles, we typically just focus on, on one part. We're, we're baptized into Christ, right? And it's true. We are baptized into Christ. We're baptized into his death for sin, and we're baptized into his resurrection to a new life. It's like we are putting ourselves, we believe that we are with him, with Christ in his death and with him in his resurrection. So our baptism, our, our, our immersion in the water is like we have done that with Christ. It's just physically, just through water, but spiritually it's through faith. But baptism is not just pointing to what happened to us and Jesus. It also, toward, it also displays what happens to us and the Holy Spirit. Because the one who baptizes us, the, was, the one who immerses us into the body of Christ, the one who actually glues us to Christ, unites us with Christ, is actually the Holy Spirit. He applies to us the gospel, the benefits of the gospel. That's why... The Apostle Peter in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when he speaks to the Jews who were convicted of sin, and they say, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and believe, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see how Peter linked here uh, faith in Christ with baptism and with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. That's why the act of baptism symbolizes not just our union with Christ, but also our immersion into his body through the Holy Spirit. So that we can say also the scripture speaks about us being immersed in the Holy Spirit. You say, where's that language in the Bible? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The Apostle Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That's what baptism represents as well. 
our faith is not just in God, but in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. This is saving faith. Our baptism displays the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit for our salvation. So in this particular case, these guys never heard about the Holy Spirit. And so Paul goes back to this Holy Spirit, but what were you baptized into? So the answer, well, we were just baptized in the baptism of John. And to which Paul realizes they may have claimed to be baptized with the baptism of John, but their knowledge of what John actually did and of what John's mission was, was deficient. And that's what Paul corrects them in verse 4. Paul says, okay, ba John baptized with the baptism of repentance. But he did it telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. You see how, how Paul is correcting their interpretation? Or their even knowledge of what they knew about John the Baptist and his message? Now, I'll tell you one, one very interesting thing about this passage, about this answer that Paul gives. This whole situation started with their deficient view of the Holy Spirit, right? Why is Paul pointing to John the Baptist who's pointing to Jesus? I mean, what, what does Jesus have to do with the fact that they have a deficient view about the Holy Spirit? You know why he's doing this? Do you know who the, was the first person in the Gospels who actually connected the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the Holy Spirit? It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist said he came to, to identify Jesus to Israel and to tell Israel that Jesus is the one who will baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist already pointed to the ministry or the coming of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of Jesus. The only way to get the Holy Spirit is through Jesus because he is the one who will, who will baptize his disciples and will give them the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus promised at the end of the Gospels. That's why Pentecost is such a big deal. Because after Jesus left to the Father, he did give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. But here's the point. It's all linked together. The experience of the Holy Spirit is linked to, the, to responding to Jesus. When we understand Jesus, what he did, what he came to do and accomplish for us, and we embrace him, he promised to give his disciples the Holy Spirit. And that's why... Paul has to do this work again of, of telling these disciples about Jesus. You see, this is why the faith of these disciples was not enough. They had faith, but in what? What was the object of their faith? If, if it doesn't have a clear object, it may not be saving. It may not be sufficient for salvation. That's why, dear friends, I want to say that such faith is not enough. Sometimes people say about others, uh, you may have heard this phrase, he's a man of faith. Heard that? He's a man of faith. Such a description means very little. It can mean a lot of things, not, not all of which may be very helpful. Faith in what? Without a basic knowledge of what, is, of what we are putting our faith in, such faith is not able to save we do not experience, we have not experienced Christian conversion without a, such a, just a basic, clear knowledge of the object of our faith. Paul wrote in Romans 10, 14, How will they know or how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
and how are they to believe in whom in him of whom they have never heard these folks can't believe in the holy spirit if they haven't heard of him friends this is why we care so much about you being able to know what you have believed in that's why we care so much about those who come in and become members of this congregation we ask them in, and ask them to tell us what they believe in. What is the object of their faith? We, we, we're not happy just with people saying, oh, I, I have, I'm a man of faith, or I'm a woman of faith. What does that mean? Faith in what? We want to ask. Friends, if you are visiting us this morning and you've never understood or heard the word of the gospel, the truth, the news of, of, of salvation that God prepared for us sinners, this is the news that we boast in. This is a news that we cling to. This is a news we want to make sure everyone knows and understands, that all of those who become members of this congregation understand. It's a news that we are all sinners. Even though God created us perfect in His sight, we have rebelled against God, the Creator. We have rebelled against Him. And therefore, because of that rebellion, we rightly and justly deserve God's loving punishment because He loves good. He loves perfection. He cannot stand any imperfection, not the smallest ounce of it. And therefore, we, we, we rightly deserve his punishment. But the news that God gives us is also that he provided a way for rebellious sinners like us so that we would not stay forever under God's condemnation, but we might be restored back to God. We might be, the, the, the penalty of our rebellion was able to be put aside, paid for, so that we might be brought back into God's family, restored back to God. And that way of salvation is through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's own Son. It is when we understand that, that God provided this way of salvation and called sinners like us to respond to Him. And we repent of our sin. We turn our back towards sin and turn instead toward Jesus and embrace Him by faith. We want to say, Jesus, you're mine. I want to embrace what you have done for me. It's in that moment that God actually grants us adoption. We are now becoming part of his family, and God pours out his Holy Spirit upon us. That's the news of God's salvation. We care about that. We want people to understand it. But we also want to let people know that unless they respond through repentance and faith, that news will do no good to them. Unless people embrace Christ through repentance and faith, that news will do nothing good except to judge them and give them even less of an excuse before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, dear friend, if you're visiting with us this morning, and if you have not responded to this faith in Christ, if you have not responded to Christ Jesus, I pray that you do so today. I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. This is the news of the gospel. We want everyone to know it. Christian conversion, Christian conversion is clear about the object of our faith. Number three, Christian conversion calls for baptism. Christian conversion calls for baptism. It's the only time in the entire New Testament where we see a case of rebaptizing. The only time. And the reason why this rebaptism takes place is because Paul realized. They have not even known what they had believed in. Therefore, whatever baptism they experienced was not the baptism representing Christian conversion. Um, it happened because their faith prior to this moment was inadequate. 
their knowledge of the gospel was inadequate. So now that they heard, now that Paul had a chance to make it known to him, they get re-baptized or baptized for the first time as Christians. Friends, here's the bottom line. Christian conversion calls for Christian baptism. There are people today in our world, in our day, that um, have such a low view of baptism that they think, since it's not the cause of my salvation, since baptism, since baptism does not cause me to be saved, therefore, why do it? Does it really matter? Now, I would say to you, based on what Scripture tells us and teaches us, is that even though we do not believe that baptism contributes to us being saved, it does make public the declaration of our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Also, Christ commanded us to make disciples. And part of the process of making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ is by baptizing them. So, actually, baptism does have a role and a, a part in Christian conversion. It's not salvific, but it does play a part in what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. And uh, the last argument I have for you is that we just don't see any in Acts, any converted believers who remain unbaptized. There's just, we don't see that. So Christians, people who come to know the Lord Jesus through faith, they end up to be baptized. And therefore, if, if any of you are Christian, you have responded to the, to, the, to, to the gospel, you understand the gospel, you responded to it but you've never actually made that profession of faith or baptism, I encourage you to consider, take this task carefully. It is part of the package of becoming a follower of Christ and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a fourth component about true conversion. True conversion is evidenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit. True conversion is, is evidenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The norm of every Christian conversion is that the Holy Spirit is given to us. This is the norm. The presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us from the moment we believe. What is not the norm is the miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And yet in this particular case, a miraculous manifestation happens. Look at verse 6. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And they were about 12 men in all. Now, why do I say that the miraculous manifestations of the coming of the Spirit is not the norm, even if it happens in this passage? Well, because with the exception of three other passages, all the conversions in Acts do not speak about the necessity of a miraculous manifestation of the coming of the Holy Spirit. It happened three other times prior to this moment in Acts. It happened on Pentecost in Acts 2, and I spoke about that when we preach on Acts 2. I encourage you to consider um, listening to that sermon again. But uh, at that time, it happened because it proved that Jesus' promise to give the Holy Spirit indeed happened. It happened in a very clear, visible way, miraculous way. But it's also clear that Pentecost, as an event in the history of, Christ of the Christian Revelation cannot be repeated. Pentecost is, cannot be more repeated than the virgin birth of Christ can be repeated. It is a moment prophesied by Ezekiel. It is a moment prophesied by, by the prophet Joel when God would actually pour out his spirit on his people. And that, once that moment happens, 
it's done. The Spirit will remain with God's people until the return of Christ. Now, it's true that experientially, we always want the Spirit to continue to fill us, to, to renew us, to be refreshed in us. But we now live as Christians in the age of the Spirit. The Spirit has been poured out on all of God's people. And yet, the Spirit or the, the manifestations of the Pentecost get to be repeated um, three more times in Acts 8, in Acts 10, and in Acts 6, uh, 19. So how can we say that the Spirit was, the Pentecost happened only once, even though we see some of these miraculous manifestations? Well, the answer is in Acts 8, in Acts 10, the Spirit is given to the Samaritans, the people the Jews hated, and it's given to the Gentiles, the people the Jews ignored and wanted to have nothing to do with them. And the point in those, those situations was to show that the what happened at Pentecost was expanded to the ends of the earth, to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles as well. But what, what about here? What about here in Acts 19? Why is the Spirit given in this miraculous way, the coming of the Spirit? Well, it's to point out that at, this time in, 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 at that time in, in the world of human history, people who still clung to the Old Testament covenant without understanding Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that faith is no longer adequate. Once Christ has been revealed, once the Holy Spirit has been given, having faith apart from those is no longer adequate. So now the Holy Spirit is given to actually validate that what Paul assessed about their spiritual condition was indeed correct. They have not received the Spirit, and it was not good for them not to receive the Spirit. The Spirit is given to make it clear that the saints of that age, who's after Jesus was revealed, after the Spirit has been given, and they still lived in the way of the Old Testament, it was no longer adequate. They needed to hear about Jesus. They needed to hear the receiving and the, to, to get the, 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 the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's made, this has made such a big deal. The receiving of the Spirit is given with such clear, miraculous manifestations to show that even these disciples of John the Baptist, they too need Jesus. They too need the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, I love what John, uh, what, uh, what, what John Stott says. Paul's two questions here imply that to have believed and been baptized and not to have received the Spirit constitutes an extraordinary anomaly. To have believed and been baptized and not received the Spirit is to to, be, to have an extraordinary anomaly. And John starts it, the norm of Christian experience then is a cluster of four things, repentance, faith in Jesus, water baptism, and the gift of the Spirit. And these happen together. Now, how do we know if the Spirit is in us today? I said the norm of, of having a miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit is not the norm. We see so many examples, in, 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 both in Acts and other places in the New Testament, where that is not the norm. Um, so how do we know that, this, that the Holy Spirit is in us? Friends, there are so many, there are so many evidences of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. First, know this. We know that certainty is based on our faith in the promise of God. God says that when we turn to Jesus, when we embrace Jesus, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. It's a matter of trusting in the promises of God's Word. But second of all, there is certainty also 
because of what the Spirit does when He comes in us. We start seeing evidences of the work of the Spirit in our lives. The first evidence is the conviction of sin. The first evidence of the work of the Spirit in our lives is the conviction of sin. I know, friends, as much as we don't like to be convicted of sin, as, as much as we don't like to emphasize the need for repentance, this is one of the works of the Holy Spirit inside of us. He convicts us of sin. A second thing he convicts us of is he convicts us of, of the love of God or, or, or assures us or gives us the love of God. Um, we start seeing changes in us. Uh, here's an example. Paul says in Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, when the Holy Spirit, one of the changes the Holy Spirit brings in us, when he comes in us, he pours in our hearts God's love so that we start loving God. And guess who else we start loving? We start loving God's people and other people. We start loving God's word. We actually start having a, a desire that we've never had before ever. We just start loving opening the Bible and being interested. What does this book say? We also see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Remember Galatians 5, 22 and 25 says the following, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. To belong to Christ is to be indwelled by the Spirit of Christ. Therefore, that's what gives us the, the ability, the strength to walk in the Spirit. So friends, when the Spirit of God is given to a person through faith in the Lord Jesus, the evidence of that is a changed life. If you want to see a, man, a visible manifestation of the, of the Holy Spirit of God in a person's life, a changed life. One thing you, that, that, that is there, always. That's why a changed life, while it's never the cause of our salvation, it's an evidence that something truly has happened in our conversion. That's why if, if there's no changed life, there's no, es, there's no even a, a morsel of changed life in someone who professes to have been, ex, been converted, there's reasons to question if there has been ever. Has this person received the Holy Spirit? We could ask that very question very easily. Four things about true conversion. Christian conversion is not a one-way street. Christian conversion has a clear object of faith. Christian conversion calls for Christian baptism. Christian conversion is evidenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when you have brought us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you did not leave us to be alone. But at the moment of our hearing, the moment of our conversion, you also poured in us your Holy Spirit. Father, make us more aware of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. Father, make us more vigilant and desirous to live life in step with the Spirit who lives inside of us. Oh, Holy Spirit of God, we pray that you would empower your church to, to live as a witness to our conversion. May people see 
lives that have been changed by you, the Holy Spirit living in us. May that change intrigue others and inquire about the faith that has produced this change in us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do more things among us and in us so that you and the Son and the Father would be honored. We pray this in the name of Christ.